Section 2 of The Countess of Lowndes Square and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim's Vox 4. The Countess of Lowndes Square and Other Stories by E. F. Benson. Section 2 Blackmailing Stories. Chapter 2 The Blackmailer of Park Lane. Arthur Waitley had known very well what it was like to be desperately poor, and in consequence, when he became so desperately rich that money ceased to mean anything to him, his pity for the penurious was not hysterical or exaggerated. He could recall very vividly what it felt like to have neither tea, dinner, nor supper, and to wake in the morning, stiff and cold as armour, on a bench on the embankment, and see the ridiculous needle of Cleopatra stonily pointing heavenwards against the sky, in which the stars were beginning to burn dim at the chilly approach of day. He had known how icy the feet become when they have been close-clasped all night long in the frayed embraces of gaping leather, but he had known also how sweet and surprising it is to eat when food is imperiously demanded by the cravings of long-continued abstinence, and how ineffably luxurious to get warm, when limbs have ached themselves numb. He would have been willing to confess that unveneered destitution had its inconveniences, but it was false sentiment to deny that it had its compensations also. It was when he was just sixteen that luck, the great veiled goddess whom all the world so wisely worships, had paid him her first visit. He had been hanging about at the covered portico of the Lyceum Theatre one night, watching the well-fed world being lumpily deposited at the doors, when a silly old pink gentleman, in paying his cabman, dropped a promising pocketbook in the roadway. For one half-second the boy deliberated, wondering instinctively, though he had never heard of the proverb, if honesty was the best policy. In other words, how much the pocketbook contained, and how much the foolish old gentleman would give him if he picked it up and returned it. A couple of pence, perhaps, for he looked a coppery gent. But the debate lasted scarcely longer than it took the pocketbook to fall. In a moment, his wise decision was made. He had picked it up, recognising in that delightful incident the smile of the great goddess, had dived under the Roman nose of the cab horse, and fled into the street where a chill, unpleasant rain was falling. Luck still smiled on him, for the night was foggy, and as soon as he had crossed the street, he dropped into the habitual shuffling pace of the homeless, and returned to the portico which he had so lately quitted, since it was theoretically impossible that the thief should do anything so foolish. The silly old pink gentleman had not yet ceased to gesticulate and gibber in the direction in which he himself had just vanished, and an obsequious policeman was apparently taking down all the bad words he used in a neat notebook. Arthur wondered if he would arrest the old man for indulging in language redolent of faint praise in a public place. Meantime, he had thrust the pocketbook, 
that incarnate smile of the beneficent goddess into his shirt, and it slid comfortably down against his skin till it was brought to anchor by the string which he had so strictly tied round his braceless trousers, since pressure in those regions minimised the abhorrence of vacuum. Then he slouched back to the embankment, and with head bowed over his knees as if in sleep, he counted the tale of his treasure, taking out each item separately and screening them from the parental scrutiny of policemen in the cavern of his hand. There were two pieces of the fabulous crinkly paper, there were three sovereigns, and, what was immensely important for immediate purposes, a couple of shillings, translatable without suspicion into rich fried fish. One of his trouser pockets was a secure harbourage, and into this he piloted the golden ship. Then, with a stroke of high wisdom, he thrust the pocket-book through the interstices of the bench, instead of keeping about him so incriminating a piece of merchandise, and slouched away, saying good-bye to roofless bedchambers by the sweet Thameside for ever. Tonight, as he sat in the great dining-room of his house in Park Lane, the memory of that divine evening was vividly brought to his mind. Three friends had dined with him, and as the night proved foggy, they had abandoned the idea of seeing the most incompletely clad dancer that the London County Council had at present licensed, and had decided to stay at home and play bridge. A cold, foggy night, sir, had been the pronouncement that followed the butler's news that the motors were round, and the simple words had conjured up that wonderful night of his boyhood with the vividness of hallucination. Bates, too, had a Roman nose, just like the cab horse, and Bates, by a strange coincidence, had just laid by his plate a couple of banknotes and some change, since he had found himself completely destitute of coin. Had he ever enjoyed himself so much in all these fat years as on that cold, lean, foggy evening so long ago? Honestly, or dishonestly, he could not believe that he had, for there had been about it the one and only and original spice. Then, for the first time, he had heard the clear call of the great golden goddess. She had called often since. Indeed, for years she had never ceased calling, and it was not too much to say that for years she had been madly and unreasonably in love with him. He received her with yawns now, like some poor discarded mistress, but the chilly reception never deterred her. She never noticed that he was bored, and his indifference seemed but to inflame her ardour. Solid, monotonous good luck had followed him all the days of his life, ever since the night when he was sixteen and so happily stole the pocket-book. All he had touched turned to gold. All he had desired had been granted him. All his ideals such as they were, had frozen into cold, suety facts. 
half of the £13, which were the result of his original theft, had been expended in reach-me-down clothes and ready-made boots, which, in those happy years, could be purchased by others than millionaires, for it was symptomatic of him never to grudge money when it was probably a good investment, and between his natural smartness of face and carriage and the acquired smartness of his new clothes, he had at once got a place as a hall boy in an hotel. He learned to swim in the Chelsea baths, and August was scarcely begun when this recreation was turned to solid account, for, being at Margate on a bank holiday, a pleasure boat conveniently capsized near him, and he easily rescued the only daughter of a prosperous bookmaker. That gentleman seemed not to resent the unexpected survival of a rat-faced child, had given him fifty pounds in cash, and, subsequently, several racing tips by way of a gilt-edged security for the fifty pounds. These proved not to be gilt-edged only, but completely covered with pure gold. Then came the news of possibilities in South Africa, and, gambler as he was, in every drop of blood in his body, he had gone for these with a thousand pounds to his credit. He threw his thousand pounds at the rand, and, as if he had given it a little emetic pill, the rand belched gold at him. In ten years, though he had enjoyed those years quite enormously, the savour of money-making grew stale, and with a brilliant excursion into American rails, which returned him his fortune more than doubled, he quitted the speculative arena, and for the last decade and a half had looked with eyes of incredulous wonder at the extraordinary gentleman who continued to go to offices in the city all day long and industriously accumulate what they did not want. There was one such here tonight, a great, round, dark man with yellow hair, the colour of a London fog. He took a grudged month's holiday in the year, but otherwise sat in an office with his ear to a telephone and his mouth to a speaking tube. Perhaps it amused him, for certainly there was always in his eye a remote twinkle, as if he had constant grounds for private mirth, and Arthur Waitley had often suspected him of being a secret humorist. Yet, in the ordinary commerce of social life, none was so heavy or so commonplace. He and his wife were social climbers of pathetic industry, who gave parties that tried to be smart and only succeeded in being garish. Yet there was that secret twinkle in his eye. The same good luck had dogged Arthur Waitley in affairs more intimate to his happiness than gold. He had married the woman whom he adored, and just when his adoration had cooled and she was beginning to bore him to extinction, she had run away with somebody else. He had wanted the particular house in which he now sat, and the owner had died just when his demise was most convenient, leaving his affairs in an unutterable confusion, and his executors were delighted to sell everything. He had, again, in artistic spheres, conceived a violent passion for the pictures of Giovanni Bollini, and an impecunious peer 
foreseeing that income taxes and death duties were swelling like inflated footballs, had sold him his priceless collection, which now hung round the walls of his dining room. Finally, on this particular evening, when he felt very much disinclined to go out, Providence had sent a fog to serve as an excuse for stopping in. And yet, Bridge was a rather stale affair. There was a certain intellectual pleasure in thwarting other people, but it was not much fun being clever when the rest were, comparatively speaking, such fools. His private band had been assembled in the gallery of the ballroom in case music was required, but they had been dismissed since the four went straight from the dining room into the fan room where a card table was laid out. These fans were famous and had once been the property of Marie Antoinette and other ladies, whose goods had been disposed of after their death by their executors or executioners, and Arthur Waitley had acquired them at immense expense during the year of his married life to please his wife. Shortly after he divorced her, an attempt had been made by a burglar to steal them. But an ingenious device invented by himself after his wife's departure had impeded the idea, for anyone entering the fan room after the apparatus had been set caused merry peals of electric bells to break out in the rooms of the butler, footman, oddman, and other able-bodied persons, and the intended burglar had been caught fan-handed. But his confession that the late Mrs. Waitley had commissioned him to attempt this job so interested Arthur Waitley that he took no proceedings with regard to him except to give him supper. His wife, simultaneously, rose considerably in his estimation. He had not known she had so much blood in her. The fan room overlooked the park, and regardless of possible interpretations, Arthur Waitley had straw permanently put down in the roadway to deaden the noise of traffic. There had been a ruffle with the vestry on the subject of this straw. Men with pitchforks came and took it up. But as often as they took it up, he had it renewed, and by now it had become as much a feature of Park Lane as the omnibuses. Occasionally, a policeman, new to the beat, and fired by professional enthusiasm, would question the straw strewers, but the mystic whisper, a friend of Mr. Waitley's, had the forcefulness and wit of brevity about it. The game was tepid. Not even his opponent's remarkable and reiterated revoke in No Trumps really warmed it, and Arthur Waitley was glad when his guests departed, for, unaccustomed as he was to brooding over imaginary troubles, or dulling his very acute brain with the narcotic poisoning of self-analysis, he was a little anxious about himself tonight, and was glad of a quiet hour before going to bed to examine the cause of his disquietude. It was still early when they left, for there was a dawn somewhere to which the two ladies, with the irrepressible enthusiasm of advanced middle age, were going on, while the financier was going home. On the doorstep, he confided to his host that his name was to appear next morning among the peerages given in honour of the king's birthday, and Arthur Waitley supposed he was going to seek the privacy of his own study to practice writing his new name, which was to be Peebles, in memory of pleasure.
He adjusted the bell-peeling apparatus in the fan room and retired to his own sitting room, which adjoined his bedroom. Half a dozen exquisite Watteaus decorated the walls, and the bureau which stood opposite the door was from the effects of the unfortunate Queen of France. Often and often he had thrilled at the thought that she had sat there and written those little ill-spelled notes in her sprawling hand, but tonight he would not have cared if he had found her sitting there in person. Tedium vitae, the weariness, the boredom of success, which poisons the lives of emperors and scratch golfers, had laid its heavy hand on him. He had poached the world like an egg, but he could find no salt. So it was that which ailed him. Often of late, he had found that he had little zest for this pursuit or that, but it had not struck him till this moment that the whole affair was flat. And yet it was not himself, so he felt, that was to blame. He was still but a year or two past fifty, handsome and healthy, and his powers of enjoyment he knew were undimmed, provided he could find something to exercise them on. In himself he was eager, alert, longing for excitement, but to do the same thing over and over again did not excite him. The early years of hunger and struggle and achievement had accustomed him to a high level of emotion. He wanted to burn, not to smoulder quietly away, as most people were content to do. Indeed, he had done everything he could think of. He had loved and married and been bored and had no intention of tempting the ennui of domesticity again. Nor had he any tastes for the more irregular pleasures of the senses. They were all poached and saltless. Material possessions, of course, had ceased to interest him, since he was completely surrounded with all that he thought most exquisite in the world of art, and to accumulate for the mere sake of accumulation seemed to him an exhibition of pig-trough greed. And it was so easy. He could buy anything that was for sale. Perhaps if Mr Morgan or some insatiable hoarder owned a desirable piece or picture and would not part with it at any price, he might find a secret rapture in attempting to steal it, just as his wife had done with the fans. But otherwise the act of acquisition had become too easy to be any longer agreeable. Everything wanted salt, but that was the fault of the objective world. He, subjectively, had as good an appetite as on the entranced and canonised evening when he stole the pocketbook of the silly pink man, that unconscious founder of his fortunes, who, vastly sillier than ever, had dined with him only last week and had had a fatal apoplectic seizure immediately afterwards. Tonight, he almost cursed his memory for his foolishness thirty-five years ago, for it was that theft which had led to this weariness. If only the poor pink departed had caught him and given him a taste of jail, Arthur Waitley felt he might now be rapturously pursuing the thrilling, hazardous paths of the hardened criminal, to whom every house is a possible crib to be cracked. 
every jewel in a woman's necklace a week of delirium and drunken debauch. But where's the fun of stealing, if you already own more than you can possibly want? In his mind, he swiftly ran through the Ten Commandments and found, as he had feared, that it would not give him the slightest pleasure to break any of them. There might be a little excitement about bearing false witness against your neighbour, but then that would entail appearing in a law court and listening to the pitiful humour of some fussy judge. As for the rest of the commandments, they suggested nothing amusing. There was nothing to be done with the fifth, because his father and mother had been dead for years. The sixth implied blood and violence, and violence was foreign to his nature. But for a moment, he lingered over the picture of strangling Lord Peebles and burying him in the straw in Park Lane. There was something grotesquely attractive in the notion, but probably the coroner's jury would give their verdict that he had been strangled by natural causes, and that death had been accelerated by the immediate prospect of a peerage. He himself had thrice been offered a peerage, once by the Liberals, once by the Conservatives, and once, prospectively, by the Labour Party. His invariable answer had been that previous engagements prevented him from accepting their kind invitation. That had amused him at the time. Now it seemed deplorably witless. But could he not devise something for Lord Peebles that should spoil his pleasure? Why should Lord Peebles have that secret twinkle in his eye? Why should he, at his age, be still enjoying life? Waitley felt a murderous impulse towards his friend's mirth. But... He could think of nothing, and with a sigh he took up a copy of that unique journal which is so justly famed for chronicling that which has not occurred, and prophesying that which will not possibly happen, and scarcely glancing at the leader, probably inspired by Ananias and the fashionable intelligence, certainly gleaned by Sapphira, he turned to the more reliable records of the police courts. There had been a brutal murder, apparently. The transgression of the Sixth Commandment was not wholly unattractive to people less tiresomely fastidious than himself, and a certain blameless archdeacon, whom he knew slightly, had, after the receipt of a series of threatening letters, to which answers were requested to be sent, accompanied by stout remittances, to A.M. Martin's Library, Wardour Street, reluctantly taken proceedings against the blackmailer, who had been rewarded with five years of enforced seclusion. Arthur Waitley wondered whether he himself would have the courage to prosecute a blackmailer. Probably not. With his wealth, it would be easier to satisfy the most rapacious. It was brave of the archdeacon. No doubt his artificially fostered sense of duty sustained him. His thoughts wandered on as he stared at the newspaper. Would he himself ever have the courage to blackmail anyone else? It must be the most exciting game, and to play it successfully would demand an extraordinary amount of intuition and knowledge of human nature. All depended on the character of your proposed victim. It would be as hopeless to try to extract money with threats out of some men however scarlet the secrets of which you had possessed yourself, as, single-handed, to extract a lion's teeth. Others, no doubt, 
would equally certainly yield at once to the most veiled menace. Suddenly, the paper which he held began to rustle with the involuntary tremor of the hand that held it, and an eager excitement shot up like the light of a petroleum-soaked beacon in his dulled eye. He need no longer seek for agitation. He had found, when he least expected it, the answer to his fruitless appeals to the universe to supply him with interest. In the excitement of the moment, he poured a liberal dose of whiskey into a tumbler, but the next minute poured it back. He had to keep his head cool. Artificial stimulant only led to subsequent reaction and torpidity of thought. But through the prison bars, his spirit grasped hands with the archdeacon's victim. He would certainly blackmail somebody. There were two questions to settle. Whom should he blackmail? And what had his victim done? A moment's incisive thought told him that the second question, as to what the supposed crime had been, was alien and superfluous. The poor man need not have done anything. He need only be told that the events which occurred between, say, August the 2nd and August the 10th of the year before last were known to his persecutor. All else depended on the selection of a suitable victim. If an unsuitable subject was chosen, one whose life, could such be found, was of virtue so monstrously spartan that he would not mind the events of August the 2nd to the 10th, or those of any other date being known, it was clearly impossible to proceed. On the other hand, if his life was so voluminous a catalogue of crime that there were terrible affairs in every week of it, a notified period like this would create no particular impression. Yes, it was the character of the victim that must be studied if the aesthetic blackmailer was to have any fun. For, of course, in the case of Arthur Whateley, the mere extraction of two or three hundred pounds, thousands perhaps if his prey was wealthy, meant nothing at all. And the largest ingredient in the fun would be the uncertainty as to how the victim would behave, whether he would take proceedings or pay. He must therefore be cast in no iron mould. There would be little sport in writing just one letter and then being sent to join the poor worm, so grindingly crushed by the heel of the valiant archdeacon. Nor, on the other hand, would there be any zest in the punctual receipts of cheques whenever demanded. He had to think of somebody not too good and not too bad, not too brave and yet not pigeon-livered. For a while, his mind hovered, singing like a skylark, in the exultation of this absorbing preoccupation. Then suddenly it dropped to earth again. There was none so fit as Lord Peebles. His hand trembled, for the pen that was mightier than the sword, and after a few moments' concentrated thought, he dashed off these cold, cruel lines which would serve as the basis for attack. My lord, while congratulating your lordship on the well-deserved honour which the king has paid you, I feel it my duty to let your lordship know that the events which took place between August 2nd and August the 10th 
of the year before last are completely in the possession of the undersigned and are supported by documentary evidence of such sort that nobody who saw it could ever doubt its authenticity. I am prepared to give up to you all such papers as are in my possession for the sum of £2,000. I am a poor man and a desperate one, but I am strictly honourable in all business matters such as this, and on receipt of that sum, in gold, I will strictly carry out my obligations. Should your lordship take no notice of this communication, or refuse to comply with my request, the whole affair will be made public. I am well aware that I put myself within reach of the law in thus addressing you, but I would ask your lordship carefully to consider the results to yourself if you prosecute me. The circumstances of which I am possessed will then all come out, and while it matters very little to me whether I pass the next few years in prison or not, I think that the consequences to you will not be so lightly regarded by self and family. You have a great deal to lose. I have nothing. Kindly communicate with me at Martin's Library, Wardour Street, by today week at latest. Having no club or settled address at present, I call there daily for letters and occasional parcels. Faithfully yours, George Loring. In obedience to the business-like qualities which had raised him to the position of multi-millionaire, his mind instantly went into committee over details. It was but very rarely that he employed his own hand in writing, for his correspondence was entirely dealt with by secretaries and typewriters, but it would be well to disguise his ordinary calligraphy. Or, stop, there was a safer way, and the next minute the Remington typewriter which stood in the corner of the room, was opened and gleamed with bared keys. He was no adept at this clattering finger exercise, but after a few abortive trials he made a clumsy transcript of the letter and directed an envelope by the same mechanical device. Already the cautious instincts of the habitual criminal had awoke in him, and after replacing the cover on the typewriter, he carefully burned both his manuscript draft and the insane gibberish of his first typed attempts, and opening his window, let the blackened ashes float down into the straw-covered roadway. It would never do, again, to let the incriminating document lie among the other letters for post, and he hid it below the shirts in a wardrobe drawer in his bedroom in order to post it himself at some central letterbox next morning after verifying the existence of Martin's library. Then, since it was already very late, he went to bed with eager anticipation for the morrow, and many morrows. The next week was full of delightful interests. It passed in a spasm of absorbing moments and he was astonished and disgusted at himself for not having entered sooner on a course of blackmail. True artist that he was, he did not pay constant visits to Martin's library, as soon as it was possible that there might be an answer to his letter, and ask if there was anything for George Loring. But with a higher aestheticism, preferred to taste the delights of suspense, and determined not to make any inquiries, 
till the notified week had elapsed. But he could not avoid haunting Wardour Street, picturing to himself with artistic gusto his official visit to the library. Once only was the flesh too strong, and, though the week of grace had not yet expired, he could not resist the temptation of entering the library. The shop was empty, and, somewhat to his disappointment, showed no lines of filled and fitted shelves, as he had hoped. He had imagined the smell of leather bindings, bookcases full of venerable volumes of the fathers, a dignified and courtly librarian. Instead, he found a small deal counter on which were displayed the more odious of penny publications, and a stout old woman of comfortable appearance looked up from her knitting as he entered. But behind her, and his heart beat quicker at the sight, were rows of capacious pigeonholes, each initialed with a letter of the alphabet. But even as she asked him, in a hoarse, fruity voice, what she could do for him, he called on his finer instincts again, and instead of asking if there happened to be anything for George Loring, contented himself with buying society pars and frivol and fashion. With these prints in his hand, he left the shop without even looking at the letter L. But after all, perhaps, the commonplace sordidness of the establishment was of greater artistic value than his preconceived idea of it. It was a grimmer affair like this. It was more piquant, more trenchant, that white-faced men, trembling and unmanned by the possibility of dreadful disclosures coming to light, should bring their forfeits to this ordinary little establishment that their unseen and terrible persecutor should ask for letters from a comfortable old lady over a dingy deal counter. Hardly had he emerged when there drove by a motor in which, of all people, Lord Peebles was sitting, who waved an absent welcome to him. He saw at once how dangerous had been his visit. Supposing he had asked for letters for George Loring, and had staggered out of the shop with a scarcely manageable parcel of gold, to encounter such a meeting, it was distinctly within the bounds of possibility that that nobleman would connect him with George Loring. His blood ran cold at the thought, and yet it was a pleasing shiver, which at once suggested a further precaution, delightful in the devising. A disguise was imperatively necessary. He hailed a taxicab and spent an enraptured afternoon. George Loring had probably done this sort of thing before, and it might be supposed that, though poor and desperate, he retained from the fruits of his last crime clothes of a flashy and ill-fitting description such as he, would certainly wear a gaudy check shirt and cheap patent leather boots. His tie, of the Brussels carpet type, would assuredly be pinned with something too magnificent to be possibly valuable. Detachable cuffs and a dicky, a hat with a furrow in it, would complete his detestable array. Arthur Waitley himself was clean-shaven and solidly English in face. 
a moustache and imperial, therefore, suggesting a Polish conjurer, were indicated. These must be of convincing make, incapable of detection, and a visit to an expensive perichias with a brilliant tale of a fancy dress ball made the last visit of a thrilling afternoon. And that night, when the great house in Park Lane was silent and the electrical apparatus in the fan room adjusted, a figure, appalling to contemplate, strutted and pirouetted before the big looking-glass in his locked bedroom. All this, so exquisite to his pleasure-jaded palate, was but the material aspect of his adventure. Far sweeter and more recondite was the psychical honey of it. For, two days after George Loring had sent his letter, Lord Peebles telephoned to know whether Arthur Waitley would play golf with him, and though he detested and despised the game, he gave an enthusiastic affirmative and drove down with him to the mid-Surrey links at Richmond. Certainly, Lord Peebles looked worried and anxious, and the grey streak above his ears seemed, to the vigilant eye of his friend, to have assumed greater prominence. "'It's so good of you to ask me to play,' said Waitley as they started. "'I'm a wretched performer, and I know your prowess.' "'Oh, I expect we shall have a very even match, a very even match,' said the other. "'And I needed a day off, though it's not Saturday. "'But there has been some worrying business lately, "'and I wanted to get into the country and forget all about it. "'Very worrying business.' "'Waitley's eye gleamed secretly.' These worries fed his soul. Indeed, I'm sorry to hear that, he said. Thank you, thank you. A purely private affair. Don't let us talk of it. Pretty the country looks. What's that river we are crossing? The River Thames, said Waitley, almost tremulously. Perhaps, said Lord Peebles. He cleared his throat. The Thames, he began and then changed the subject to something amazingly foreign to that topic. It is strange how one's memory plays tricks with one, he said. A couple of days ago I was trying, quite idly, to recollect where I spent the early days of August, the summer before last, and was totally unable to recall what I had been doing. My wife remembers that we went to Scotland on the 11th, but she too has quite forgotten what we did just before. She inclines to think that I was paying some visits without her. Curious. Arthur Waitley laughed in a sprightly, rallying manner. Aha, he said. She's probably right, eh? Trust a wife's memory, my dear fellow, on that sort of point. No doubt she's right, returned the other. But it is strange that we can neither of us recollect where I went. Perhaps you never told her, said Waitley gaily. But come, dismiss those evasive topics. Let the past bury its dead. It is only the present that is truly ours. They had arrived at the clubhouse, and Waitley stepped out, followed by the heavier-footed peer. It was almost too good to be true that by sheer accident he had lighted on days that seemed hard to account for, and, treading on air, he hurried into the dressing-room, where, in momentary privacy, he was forced to indulge in a few toe-pointing capers of delight. And, after all, 
though the emotions with which he had supplied his friend were of anxious and ominous description, still, emotions after all, of whatever sort, are the salt of life, and here was a new one for him, something with a strong flavour about it. But he could afford to be generous, since he himself was being so richly entertained, and he did not grudge him one pang of the worry and anxiety inseparable from his position. Arthur Waitley's golf was generally of the most wayward description. He cut balls savagely to point and topped them ventre terre into cavernous bunkers, while Lord Peebles played a dreadfully steady game that, as a rule, walked arm in arm with bogey round the links. But today a strange upset of form took place, for while Lord Peebles seemed unable to hit any ball in the requisite direction or with the requisite force, Arthur Waitley, by virtue of the inscrutable laws that govern golf, performed with incredible excellence, and not unnaturally concluded that blackmailing is very good for the eye. Not for years had he felt so keenly the zest and ecstasy of living, and while watching his unfortunate opponent digging his ball out of tussocks of rank grass and eviscerating bunkers, he planned many similar adventures for the future. He felt as if he had awoke at last to his true nature. By accident he was a millionaire and the architect of his own colossal fortune. But by instinct and birth he seemed to be an aesthetic criminal. And the discovery had come upon him, though late, yet not too late. There might be many ecstatic years in store for him yet. The days of that enchanted week passed slowly, and each moment that brought him nearer Friday morning, when he would don his atrocious disguise and visit Martin's library, brought him no nearer any firm conjectures as to what he should find there. It so happened that he met his victim several times in the course of the week, and if, as on the occasion of their golf match, his mental and physical aspect seemed to indicate that he would assuredly lack the courage of the archdeacon and obediently pay his fine. On other occasions he showed a calmness and control that was consistent with more aggressive proceedings. To Waitley's knowledge, he transacted during that week a very difficult and intricate financial undertaking that caused certain bankers in Berlin to curse his acumen, and later he won the Mid-Surrey Monthly Medal, which looked as if his aberration had been only temporary. And the uncertainty and suspense thrilled and fascinated his persecutor. End of section two.